I'm typing in the Heckles Home Labs in Margate, in the building which was once home to a busy casino. The sky is a blue-grey metal. The air outside is crisp, and the days now feel ever so slightly shorter than the stretched-out hours of a very distant feeling past summer. I'm on the first floor, in between two wildly different views. Behind me, a huge open, I guess you could say, theatre or circular, what would you call it, viewing shelf, overlooking the whole of the Heckles ground floor area. Ahead of me, six huge window panels, the lower third of which entirely occupied by the sea. The colour of it appears to blend in seamlessly with the sky above, but its own metallic appearance reflects slightly darker, which makes it seem heavier somehow. A scattering of distant boats glance across the limit of the horizon, looking like small bath toys. There are lines of different colours underneath the horizon too, just a couple, lighter colours which soon meet the body of the ocean and merge with the heavy, cold metallics. The expanse of sea is almost too much to understand. I feel like this is why I spend so much time simply watching it. I'm often tempted to start imagining how many litres of water there are, or how long it would take to empty it all with a teaspoon. Strange mental distractions and diversions like that. But I find that those paths lead to a busy and confused mind, so I tend to try and just observe and admire and appreciate without meandering too far. In the passing moments while I've been here looking out at the sea, I've also been thinking about what's happening in it. In it, under the surface, amongst it. But also, the thought crossed my mind of how much, so much of my experience seeing what's in the sea has been behind a screen. Even here now, I'm looking at the sea from behind a window. Other times it's been through a TV screen or maybe a cinema. I can imagine what's happening underneath the sea surface, but I feel like my imagination has been decorated with imagery from the small and big screen. Or magazines, those two. Often when I'm physically in the sea, I tend to not wear goggles, which would allow a glimpse of the underwater universe. I wear glasses, and so I feel like I need to keep those on so that I can remain as fully sighted as possible when I'm not on the familiar dry land, the sand or the asphalt. Can you get prescription goggles and snorkels? I mean, maybe there's a solution, but still, the goggles and visors are still screens behind which we get to view the world underwater. Thinking of the nature behind a screen idea, it made me start to ponder upon the nature that is available to us firsthand. Maybe the examples begin with dogs, cats, goldfish, your classic pet varieties. Here in Margate, I can hear another example literally as I'm talking now seagulls. Or maybe for those living not so close to the sea, pigeons and doves. I mean, I won't continue just listing species and living creatures here, but you see where I'm going. Keeping the focus on the sea for now though, the examples of nature we get to view firsthand, up close and personal, get a little fewer and further between. Occasionally you might be lucky enough to catch a seal poking its little head up out of the water, which, in my case, and I'm being 100% honest with you, will cause me to clap my hands and return to my awestruck five-year-old kid's self. That and seeing dogs swimming, I just, I don't know what to tell you, I love it. We also had a tide of sea stars, aka starfish, wash up on the seafront in the middle of the year, which for a few of us on location where it happened was cause for a little low-key celebration in between awkwardly positioned photo opportunities. There's also the wide and weird world of seaweed, which all of us at Heckles are extremely familiar with at this point, the varieties of which are mind-boggling and seemingly infinite. Now, while being incredible and all miracles in their own right, I feel like these are the basics. Seagulls, seaweed, crabs. But when you start to think of the freewheeling and on-the-surface menacing-looking sharks, the schools of fish like underwater murmurations of birds, melting through the sea like cursive handwriting, the rejoicing arms of kelp and underwater plant life reaching up to the light but never quite making it, and those fierce, intense and hallucinogenic vibrations of colour that warm your eyes. When you start to envision these... I think it might be safe to say that we're remembering what we've seen on TV programmes and documentaries, 
or perhaps in a huge tank at a zoo or wildlife park. But still, we often have a screen in between us. In this episode of the Blue Mind podcast, the screen will be removed, the cold sea will engulf us, wrap us up in its impossibly ancient waves, and we'll meet the nature within, all the while learning how we might better understand its infinite complexities, maladies, gifts, troubles, treasures, and beauty. You are listening to the Blue Mind podcast from Heckles in Margate. I invite you to think of this as your auditory escape hatch, a safe space and your world within or outside of a world. Think of it as a way out or a way in. A journey of discovery or pure uninterrupted relaxation time. Whatever works best for you. I am your host, Buddy Peace, and mine will be the voice you'll hear narrating throughout. For now though, we return to the sea. For some, the solution and remedy to everything life delivers us. A provider of safety, inspiration and endless wonder. For others, a venue of unfamiliarity, disquiet and confusion. I was fortunate enough to spend some time talking to someone who will most certainly offer wisdom and nurturing to both sides. Those who share a deep love of the sea and those of whom the sea is a friend they just haven't met yet. Sounds good. All good. Blue Mind Podcast listeners, it's a true pleasure to be able to welcome our extremely special guest to this episode. I'm Inke Queswell. I'm a wildlife filmmaker, underwater photographer and marine biologist, and I am passionate about finding ways to protect and save our oceans. Around the early to mid-summer, the Cornwall-based sustainable outdoor brand Finisterre presented something really special for World Ocean Day. Through their online activism training camp called C7, which is spelled S-E-A and the number seven, they ran a series of panel discussions and presentations revolving specifically around the sea, protecting, preserving and fighting for it, but so much more than that. It was probably one of the most engaging and inspiring presentations I've seen like this. It didn't verge on lecture, it wasn't a PowerPoint presentation or an online lesson. It involved passionate guests who had deep and detailed understanding of the sea and what it is to truly look out for it. Inca was a guest on one of the panels. I'll link to that in the episode notes. And I found myself in something of a rabbit hole days after the Ocean Day event, looking at the work of the guests involved. You're in for a real treat in this episode, as you'll be hearing all about Inca's work and her world, but that is all to come. First things first though, Inca is busy. I wondered how often she's getting in the sea at this point. As much as I possibly can. It's hard because I'm, I'm based between London and Bristol right now and there is not an ocean, it's either one of them. Um, but diving is a huge part of my practice. So I do a lot of work underwater and I'm currently training to use a rebreather, which is a technical bit of equipment where you recycle your air and use oxygen sensors and scrubbers. And it's um, all a bit complicated and I have to have 100 hours to work on it. So almost every weekend I'm, I'm sat in a quarry, <laughs> freezing cold. And that's the closest I'm kind of getting to that feeling of being in the ocean at the moment. But um, anytime the weather allows, I'm racing down to the sea and trying to spend some time amongst the cat forest. So even just like that quick dash in first thing in the morning, it's so worth it. Like um, me and my boyfriend quite often will go down to Brighton, run into the ocean, do morning affirmations and then run back out. And it just, yeah, it leaves you set for a good week. I mean, I'm sure I don't have to tell you, dear listener, about the effects of being in the sea or present a compelling case to you for spending time in it. I feel like the benefits are pretty much a given at this point, but I'll never tire of hearing people talk about their feelings being in and around the sea. Inca has clocked up thousands of hours under the surface, so what is the sea doing for her? No, something about it. it's like you just you breathe in a few breaths and you just I don't know I, I personally feel instantly better from it it's so inspiring and I think um, for me when I do struggle with work as well there was normally some of my best ideas come from just spending that time back in the ocean and kind of reconnecting and getting that creativity back and I think it's so important that we keep reminding ourselves of our roots and I'm I'm very fortunate that because my work is what I'm passionate about I can just use it as that kind of reminder okay that was a hard day, but this is why it's worth it. This is why we're doing things. And it's kind of like that that motivation is always just sitting there on the horizon, which is pretty fortunate. 
The more I hear this kind of sentiment, the more I'm convinced that the key to so much in life is simplicity. Life gets tangled, messy, complicated. Our thinking can get convoluted and foggy, and suddenly we can arrive at a place we forgot the directions to. The breadcrumb trail has disappeared and we're weighed down by thoughts. Spending time in the water can dissolve so much of this heavy, thinky sediment, but I've never really gotten to the bottom of how or why. I don't know. <laughs> no, I haven't either. And it's like, I've, I've read so many things about it, trying to understand what it is about it. And I know a lot of people say it's because we are 70% water and we are just as controlled by the moon and the tides as anything else. And there is that kind of that connection just in our biology. But I think it goes, it goes so far beyond that. And it's the fact, it's the, for me, it's the calming presence. It's the, the fresh air, it's the sound, everything about it. I just find so soothing. But also I think it's kind of being able to look out of that horizon and just see something that's endless, something that's completely out of your control and completely wild. And whereas cities always feel so so man-made and almost claustrophobic at times, the ocean is like, it doesn't matter what's going on in your life, you'll never be able to control this one thing. And there's beauty in that. What a perfect way to frame it. We spend so many hours each day as our own pilot, controlling our journeys and directing our bodies around our surroundings. But when we're in the sea, looking at that endless horizon, the sea holds the cards. We can steer ourselves a bit and control our direction in swimming, but we're so insignificant in such an impossibly massive body of water. And that's so humbling. There's not a lot of room for ego in that equation. And similarly, added to that, that body of water represents pure flowing energy which links every single land boundary. It touches every part of it. Yeah. Connection. Yeah. And it's one of the things I love about it as well. It's the idea that it's like, it's this one thing that connects everyone around the world. Whether you do live in a city or you live by the coast, we are all connected to our ocean in some capacity from the air that we breathe, the water that you drink. In some way, there is that connection. I'm half Caribbean and I love the idea that like the ocean I'm looking at is the same ocean that people in Jamaica are looking at it. And there's that connection across the oceans where you just, um, you feel linked to so many people. And you know that it has been somewhere of such privilege for such a long time. And go back in time and think about how many people have stood where I've stood looking out at this view. And there's something beautiful about that. And if you really want a mind-blowing moment on top of that, consider the fact that this water we're talking about has always been there. Yeah, it's the same water. The same water that was here with the dinosaurs is the exact same water we have now. It's just changes form and moves around and very circular in its system. Come on now, isn't that incredible? Easy to forget or take for granted, but we're looking at pure history every time we look out to the horizon. There are so many updates, upgrades, revisions in our day-to-day -day technology that we can so easily forget that the sea, the sun, the moon, the stars, they've been around, as far as we're concerned, forever. That's a whole tangent in itself, and it's certainly about as humbling as all of this gets, but that's for another time. Or something to think about when you're outside, and maybe feeling overwhelmed by the daily stuff. So we've already made a journey from the inner, how we feel in the sea, to the outer, essentially the extent of the galaxy. So let's follow that breadcrumb trail I mentioned earlier back to Inca. I asked her about people and process. By people, I mean people in her life inspirations, who she looked to in her beginnings as a filmmaker, and what she does now. And by process, I wanted to know how it all works. Yeah. How does she make it all happen? For sure. I think in terms of like the people, I was, I was very fortunate to grow up in a family that loved nature, absolutely obsessed. And they very much so emphasised that growing up, that we needed to spend time in the outdoors. And my dad loved the ocean as a kid. He grew up watching Cousteau films and he was a musician when I was younger, but he still was completely obsessed with the ocean. So it kind of became a way for us to bond. We spent a lot of time around the ocean together, rock pooling before school. And, and I was just absolutely fascinated by it, partly because I saw his enthusiasm and I think that rubbed off on me, but also just because I was introduced to this magical place. And I always think of rock pools as this like treasure chest that just gets revealed in the low tide and I think there's something so special about the fact that you only get that hour or two window to explore and then it's gone again 
And I remember as a kid kind of going out to the furthest rock pools and getting so excited and then getting stranded. And then it being this like epic journey to get back to the beach. And it really kind of ignited that sense of adventure and curiosity. And my parents really encouraged self-learning and were very much so like, okay, you're interested in this. So here's guidebooks, here's things you can read. Look at this cool thing that we found. Let's learn more about it. And um, I was lucky to have Pants Army that really kind of nurtured that interest. And when I was actually, I think when I was about five or six, I was obsessed with the ocean by that point, specifically dolphins, like most six-year-olds. <laughs> they're just, they're the best. They were, they'd chatter and, oh, Flipper was my favorite for a long time. <laughs> So just a quick pause in case anyone is not familiar. Flipper was a series from the mid-60s involving a lovable dolphin named Flipper who, with a little help from his friends, would help keep the peace in the local area. If my memory serves correctly, it could be filed in the littlest hobo, gentle Ben Lassie categories. That is to say, animals getting in and diffusing all kinds of scrapes and kerfuffles. But bear in mind that the last time I saw these programmes was decades ago, so this is all open to correction. But I remember saying to my dad, I was like, I want to work with dolphins, partly because I'd seen Flipper. And he was the one who turned to me and he goes, oh, well, that, that's the real name for that, it's marine biologist. <laughs> and he very, <laughs> very sneakily in my six-year-old brain, and I was immediately just like, okay, I'm going to be a marine biologist. And, um, and I stuck with it. And as I learned, I grew and learned so much more about these ecosystems and started to kind of piece together more how I wanted to fit into that world and how I wanted to really move into more protecting these oceans. And what I realized is that people who are drawn to the ocean share a passion. And they are so enthusiastic about this ecosystem because it is their sense of joy as well as their workplace. So their need to protect it tends to be so much stronger. And because of that, you kind of end up in these conversations where you're just bonding and there's just so much creativity going on and so much excitement because all of you are just so intrigued by the same thing. And that when you can talk to someone with that raw passion, you will be shocked by how many people want to get involved. They want to help. They want to introduce you to somebody else. It's so contagious. So I was very fortunate that I spent a lot of time sitting in on conferences and in talks for things that I thought were fascinating. And then I'd go over to the speaker after and want to geek out about all the things they said. And a few of those conversations led to opportunities to carry on working in that space. And over time, I started to build up a network and be able to build a bit of a name for myself in the science communication world. And that was um, that was really special. But I also got to learn from some amazing people who kind of took me under their wing and taught me about underwater photography and gave me tips on videography and gave me tips on storytelling. And even just beers after a dive, sitting at the dock, hearing people's stories, I was learning, okay, he, can, he has everyone wrapped around him. Everyone's engaged. What was it about that story that got everyone's attention? How can I do that with my stories? And I think, um, yeah, I learned from it from a huge variety of people that kind of swept me up in this ocean world. <laughs> you you get dragged in <laughs> like a current. <laughs> Inca mentioned scientific communication in almost the same breath as stories and storytelling. These may seem like opposing ends of a spectrum, but they are by no means mutually exclusive. In fact, sharing information through stories is very much woven into the preparation of the films Inca makes. And she has this awesome first-hand experience of it through being so involved in diving and sharing the stories that happen in the whole event of it all. But exactly how do you weave story into the process? The storytelling is like by far the most crucial part. <laughs> it is how you grip people, how you really allow to form from them and Something that I've always been taught was to kind of lead through wonder and inspiration. And I think that those are the things I try my hardest to bring in. I want to transport people into this magical world. And that comes from building the soundscape, from building the imagery, from kind of giving those big whys that allow people to feel like they're immersed in this beautiful world. And then to start delivering that story through them. But it comes down to knowing kind of what I want before I go into the water a lot of the time. So, and the same with photography, not only film, I'll think about what is the conservation message I want to get through? What is the image that would allow me to tell that story the best? And it's like I do a lot of work with sharks and with some of my great white photography, it was thinking, okay, well, I want to talk about how the pressure that sharks feel in the open ocean 
but how am I going to make a great white shark feel vulnerable? And it's like, okay, well, maybe I can think about my framing. Maybe I can make it feel small in a big blue ocean and kind of put it into the perspective of that vastness. Or maybe I want to shift my focus and really think just about the fin and only have that as the only part in focus because that's the only thing that we see when we look at sharks in terms of its value. And by kind of thinking about each image in that way, I find that it lends itself better to my storytelling because I then have the images to really kind of transport people into what I was thinking about in those visuals. And I think that when you can kind of make the words and the images line up, it allows you to tell like a much more passionate story. But I spend a lot of time going backwards and forwards with the writing and the editing and the image creating. And I read a lot as well. I'm inspired probably by authors more than by films. (laughs) But I think, um, I don't know, my personal style is I love things that are more lyrical and more authored. And I want to kind of take people on that journey with me. (laughs) No worries. It's so nice to hear what those magical tricks and techniques are. And things like how you frame a shark to give a sense of vulnerability, for instance. And how to work with the underwater world to really establish the moods and themes of each project. But that's the film technique element and what's on the screen itself. Absolutely. I was curious about how Inca directs the stories the messages, and how to connect with various audiences, scientific and the general public, as well as the group and the individual. I think the storytelling comes through regardless. Everybody connects through story. So that's always essential. But as if I'm speaking to a scientific community, usually I kind of focus my work much more around going, I know that you know about the science. There's no point in me resimplifying that for you. You don't need that. What you need is you need to know how to communicate that message to a bigger audience, how to know how to connect to them. So the way that I speak to them and the talks they give end up much more focused around this idea of science communication and using art and integrating art into their practice and how you can kind of inspire a larger group of people. Whereas when I'm speaking to more the general public, maybe who don't have a background in science, sometimes I'll go in with some really crazy facts about the ocean, things they would have never heard before that blow their mind and make them go, oh, wow, you can get that there? Or really, there's blue sharks off my coastline? And kind of finding those things that connect with them. And if you can make it relate to the individual, I think it's always such a stronger message. So if I'm speaking to people in the UK, trying to bring in UK wildlife, things that are local to them, that they feel they can have a real impact on, makes a massive difference. And I think that's one of the issues we have with ocean conservation a lot of the time is we think about these problems, but we think the ocean's so big, it must be happening over there. And you don't see how your, your what you do at home or on your local beach could really impact a humpback whale because you've never seen a humpback whale why would that impact them or how would your plastic use impact an orca that lives in Scotland and trying to kind of explain things in a much more local perspective so that they can go okay I understand now how connected we are and how connected these different places are and how my actions have influence and I think um, scientists usually understand that they're studying it but I think for when you speak to the general public that that can sometimes be really surprising. In being able to address so many groups and areas of discipline, perhaps I'm getting ahead of things here, but I have a feeling that there isn't a lot of room for ego. Of course, there must be a confidence and a control in the delivery and presentation of the message. But maybe it's the fact that the message is for the benefit of nature, which in hand benefits humans, which in some way nips the potential for ego in the bud. Oh, absolutely. Inca elaborates. I think that's the thing that I've probably learned the most with kind of talking about conservation in these different spaces is not going in thinking you're the expert. (laughs) I think it always has to be this kind of open conversation because you learn so much from both sides. And so often I've been in like little coastal communities and I'll be speaking to someone and I'm like, oh, you're actually the fisherman who has been working here for the last 30 years And your granddad worked here before you and his granddad worked here before you. And it's like their local knowledge of that region is so much better than mine. And I have just as much to learn from them. And it's kind of this good exchange of knowledge when you can do it right. And I think it's it's so important that we are we are respectful of local knowledge and everywhere we go. And that was something that I thought was really important with the storytelling and with my filmmaking is when I'm interviewing people to allow them to be themselves and allow them to kind of carry the conversation where they want it to go. And while there are things I want to get out of an interview and certain points that I want to hit in my script that I've been writing for the film, 
there's also always like the best moments for me are when they go completely away from what I've asked them and you get that essence of who they truly are and how they truly feel about this ecosystem. So I always love asking more personal questions and finding out why people connect or what they think for the future. And there's always so much to learn. And I think that's that's one of the best things about it is that I'm always learning. And every time I learn more, I realize I know even less. <laughs> I absolutely resonate with this. I only bring up the following by way of relating to Inca's point and not to direct the podcast back on me, but I truly felt this firsthand with hip-hop music. So I started listening to hip-hop back in the mid-80s, around the time of drum machines and rock guitar stabs. A few years later, when hip-hop music started to incorporate samples a lot more in the framework, it opened the door on an entire universe of music, which itself would take a lifetime to explore. A rap record would sample a soul record, I'd find the soul record it sampled from, and that would open another door on an old record label I'd missed, or a group I'd passed by, and so on and so on. Like a mirror reflecting a mirror, the world of music would extend into infinity. This is still happening by the way, but it's also why I credit hip-hop music with making me something of a music historian in my own humble little way. So I can understand where Inca is coming from. You are interested in something, and can appreciate the basics, but the deeper you get into it, the more you reveal. And what better venue for this to happen than the sea itself? We'll rejoin Inca in a few minutes to hear more about her own work and projects and ways you can engage with her unique world of creation. For now though, let's stop the world for a moment and let our ears wander through some friendly skies, dip in some cool and calm waters and observe our first thought break of this episode. The thought break is the space on the Blue Mind podcast where we replace an ad break with a space to collect thoughts, check in with ourselves and give us some time to let all that we've just heard sink in or wash over us while ambient sounds flow in the background. There's nothing you need to do at this point other than to let the sounds happen. No need to suddenly and reflexively tap the fast forward or skip button, unless you want to of course. And I'll bring you back in in a couple of minutes. I'll see you soon. Welcome back. I hope that was a nice little break. How did you get on? We'll have a chance to grab another break later on in this episode. 
But for now, let's greet our friend, underwater filmmaker, diver, and speaker, Inca Cresswell, once more. Just before the thought break, we were hearing from Inca about her filmmaking and storytelling techniques, how she weaves this all into the narrative of each project in order to effectively transmit messages and themes through the work. We'll hear about her projects in a moment, but I had a question buzzing around my head that I wanted to just put out there and see what happened. It's something simple, and maybe also a weird thing to ask at all, but the question is this, is there a sea revival happening at the moment? Yeah, I think there's definitely a revival. It's hard to know, partly I'm like, maybe I'm just surrounding myself more by the right people. And I'm kind of finding my way a little bit more. And I think that us ocean folk kind of gravitate to each other. <laughs> and you suddenly feel like your world is building. And um, yeah, from from my brother's perspective, he probably wouldn't see the revival because he's not the one there at seven in the morning at the ocean side. And I think it's hard to kind of understand. But then at the same time, I think with social media and things like Blue Planet and these programs that have connected so many people to the ocean, I think we are having a bit of a revival. It's kind of like you had the Cousteau generation, all the kids that grew up watching those documentaries with this idea of the fascination of the ocean. And then for us with Blue Planet 2, you suddenly had that wave again. And I'm sure there'll be another program that will have that same kind of surge of popularity. And in the same way that something like the Queen's Gambit makes kids run to play chess, I think that the right ocean programming will raise an entire generation of ocean conservationists. Again, it was something that was buzzing around my head, but I just had to ask it. And living in Margate, the sea is such a powerful fixture. It's like this stunning backdrop, which, to be honest, occupies a percentage of my mind at all times. Kind of like what Inca said, maybe being around the sea so much, I notice it a lot more and pay more attention to it when it comes up, so I notice the mentions and comments. Perhaps if you're currently listening to this in a city or on a motorway, maybe on a train with fields to your right and left, you won't necessarily have the sea on your mind. It makes complete sense. But I feel like if you live by the sea, you do get an idea of how people are engaging with it. And for instance, how many people are in it and on it. Swimming, supboarding, kayaking, maybe even painting a view of it. But let's get back to Inca though. Hopefully you'll have it in mind to check her work out after listening to this podcast. But I thought I'd begin by asking about her film, Saltwater Veins. The name sort of says it all. It's a perfectly evocative title. But how did the whole thing come about? Yeah, that one was that was a lot of fun to work on. I, I really enjoyed doing that. And it was it was a lockdown project. And I was probably about six months into lockdown at that point and felt like I was going insane and I was desperate for a creative outlet. And this opportunity came up with Panasonic and they were just like, oh, we want you to go out and make a short film about anything you want that's local to you. And it was such an amazing brief. And I was immediately like, well, we all know what that's going to be about, don't we? <laughs> but um, but no, it was it was fantastic. <laughs> and it was just such a it was such a good opportunity to go to parts of the coastline and spend time in them that I didn't really have an excuse to before. And I took some time off work and I just spent the time going like, no, I'm going to go sit on the beach with hot chocolate and do time lapses this afternoon. And I'm going to go and film the work pools. And I'm going to wait for it to come in and I'm going to play with it. And I really, it was, I was doing it around work a lot of the time as well. So I'd finish work about 6 or 7 p.m. and then race down to the beach because it was still those like summer days where you have sunlight until 10 p.m. And I just, it was, it was so nice to have a creative outlet. And I actually, I worked with my dad on the music for that one as well. And he wrote the music for me. And it was, um, it was really nice kind of talking him through the feel that I wanted and how I want it to be. And it was a piece of music that he wrote about me. And it was just um, really nice kind of bringing that together. And yeah, I, I love it for that reason. So <laughs> That's so lovely. The way the project involved so much personal life too. It makes the project so intrinsically linked to her as a person, while providing an invite to anyone who sees it to really feel that familiar notion of family, comfort and warmth. Not only that, I found it to be so meditative too. It's like a poetic and visual meditation on the sea, set against gorgeous music and delivered with such a calm, measured pace. But how does she capture footage which will ultimately align with this mood? What is it like to be in the sea amongst it all? Yeah, often it's, it's the really subtle things and it's something that you wouldn't notice. But I think that um, 
yeah, when it when it does work, and you also got to remember, wildlife often does not work. You kind of it's the the hardest thing in the sense that you are dependent on the ocean, which you've already discussed, because wild and out of control. You're dependent on the weather, the visibility, and then of course you've got to hope the wildlife turns up. So sometimes I'll kind of have this idea of an image in my head that I want to create. And as hard as I try, it's not going to happen. And then it's having to think on your feet and be ready to react and be ready to adjust the story if you need to. Um, so it's always it's always good to have backup plans. But often I'll kind of go into something with a really kind of lavish storyboard or kind of treatment or inspiration board of what I hope to get. And it'll, it'll come out looking completely different. But occasionally it comes out looking exactly like the inspiration board, which is always the goal. And what a feeling that must be when the footage comes out matching the storyboards and plans especially among such random energy and movement. It speaks to her preparation too, and dedication to the craft, that she has such a degree of premeditation in her films. And that's a lot of work when you see everything she's done. Just a cursory glance at her Instagram stories, chapters, will show you this. But in all of these projects, is there a favourite? I don't think so. I'm not there yet. I don't know. I think, um, I feel like I've been on a steep learning curve recently. Because I did, I did my masters in wildlife filmmaking, and then I did that project straight out of my masters, and then I went straight into working. And some of the people that I'm working with at the moment are some of the best in the industry. And I feel like I have learned so much in the last two years that everything I've done before, I'm just like, oh, that's awful. We shouldn't do it like this. Do it like that. But it's a really tricky one because I think at the same time you've got to be careful to hold on to your own voice. And I think that there's a beauty in my old work because it wasn't influenced by anybody else. And it's trying to kind of hold on to that and go, oh, but I was doing something different and it worked for a different audience. And I think that's the reason why we need so many conservation filmmakers. And I don't want to be like, hey, I'm the conservation filmmaker. It's like, no, we need conservation filmmakers all around the world because we connect to people in different ways. And I think it's so important that we have more of those unique voices coming across into film and into photography and those unique perspectives because we'd all frame things differently and we'd all get different messages through with the way that we work. So I don't know, there are, there's parts that I'm proud of and there's interviews, there's people that I'm proud of that I'm so proud to have had this opportunity to work with. But um, there's not a body of work yet that I feel was flawless. And I don't think I ever will, to be honest. I think that's a lovely sentiment, that if you yourself were ready to join the world of ocean filmmaking, that you would have a seat at the table. In a world where there's so much competition in the creative universes, there's a feeling of community and shared energy which is so refreshing. In terms of the filmmaking itself though, it did get me thinking, how long does a project take and how much footage does a completed edit require? It really depends on the projects. I think um, there's some projects that I've had where I have like a day and I'm just out somewhere and I want to pull something together and it's much more about kind of getting the message across than really the quality of the filmmaking. And there's other projects where it's like, oh no, this is a, this is a special one and I have more time and I'll play with it. But for um, working on the film, My 25 Days in Between Us, I worked on that for two weeks in Jamaica and then for three weeks in Yap and Palau filming. But before then, I was doing months of research and writing. And then I got back, I did about three months in the edit and colour grading. I spent about a month doing track lay and working with composers. So it was it was a final year project for my master's. So I, I did have a year to do it, <laughs> but it, um, it took me the full time and it's only a 15 minute film. But it was because I was nitpicking at every detail and it was also my first film. So I was I was learning as I went and making mistakes. And I look back at it now and there's so much I wish I'd done differently and I almost hate watching it. But it's um, one of those things where you kind of, you develop as you go. <laughs> the film she mentions here is called My 25, The Ocean Between Us. It's as beautiful as anything you would see on TV and weighing in at a modest but perfectly formed 15 minutes presents an inspirational and motivational tea break length film that is executed so precisely. The message is clear too, a message of hope but mingled with a necessary kind of call to action vibe in there too. On that note, let's get back to the message and underlying themes. How does Inca keep focused with so much to convey and transmit in her filmmaking? <laughs> At time, it's definitely a scattershot approach because it gets so overwhelming. I mean, we hear about it all the time. It's all these different things happening in the ocean. And at the moment, I'm also working on a research on a big ocean series. And 
I am bombarded every day with stories and things going on all around the world and especially some of the threat situations of, are facing in every part of the world. And you, it's so overwhelming because you kind of, you want to fix every problem. But I think um, there's a danger in trying to fix everything at once, <laughs> mainly that you overwhelm your audience and it becomes this challenge that is too big. And it's like the tidal wave about to hit and there's nothing you can do about it. Whereas I think what we need to do is kind of drip through that information so that people don't feel overwhelmed and they feel like there is something they can do because there absolutely is. So I try my hardest to kind of like, on things like social media, it's kind of a post per issue. <laughs> but on a film, it's um, I think it's easier to, to target, know what your key message is and find a way to convey that. But when you try and address too much, it can become overwhelming quite quickly. And what I think is so important with film is that if you're going to take people on this emotional journey where you're going to tell them about the threats of, you're going to, first of all, you're going to make them fall in love with an ecosystem. And then you're going to tell them it's in danger. You can't then just leave them hanging and feeling depressed. You need to leave them feeling motivated and inspired. Otherwise, what are you doing? What was the purpose in that? And there's only so much raising awareness can do. What we want is we want action. So you have to leave people feeling uplifted. And if you kind of bombard them with too many problems, you'll never be able to get them feeling feeling good in the end, which is ultimately ultimately the goal. And it's a, it's a fine balance because a part of you do want to just like, I don't know, word vomit all the issues of people and be like, you need to do this, 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 and this, because this, this, and this reason. And you've got to remember that not everyone has been looking at these things their entire lives and slowly building up that collective knowledge. For a lot of people, it's the first time that they're really understanding these issues. And it can be really overwhelming the first time you kind of do look under the surface at some of the issues our oceans are facing. So we've spent some time getting to know Inca, her work, and the heart behind the work. But as someone who has studied filmmaking and spent so much time in the sea, getting used to all this unique esoteric equipment, I felt like it would be a missed opportunity to not ask her about the gear involved. This kind of thing fascinates me, and I'm sure some of you listening will share a fascination and intrigue. So what does the gear checklist look like? I'll see if I can make a list of all this as well, which I'll put in the episode notes in case anyone would like a glimpse of what's what. For my independent projects, like the My 25 Age Premiers and the Saltwater Veins, it was, I'm very much so a one-man band. <laughs> and like, I might have a little bit of support. I was lucky to have on, on the ocean between us. I had a friend who came and supported me a bit and uh, my dad helped me out with sound as well. But it was very much so like just the three of us. And then doing Saltwater Veins, I did that entirely on my own, just going down to the beach. So my gear ends up often being, what can I fit in my backpack? Like, what is, what do I have space for? And um, it's funny, like now I'm working on this big production and they'll go out with 60 pelly cases at times for a shoot. And I'm just like, God, you could take everything. And I'm normally there like struggling with my little tripod. I've got my little, um, I have a Zoom, like Atmos recorder, which I use to record all the ocean sounds because I love bringing as much sound as I can in. I'm currently shooting on the S1H by Panasonic, which is an amazing full frame camera, which is just fantastic. And yeah, really enjoying using that. And I use that with a Nauticam housing that has a vacuum seal, which means that I can basically test it to make sure that it is 100% watertight before I put it in the water uh, because floods suck. So lavalo mics, which are great for if you want to do a quick interview or if you want to walk and talk, that kind of thing. Um, I use a DJI Mavic, uh, which can be fantastic kind of building those aerials. It was quite an, an interesting one with the saltwater veins. I decided not to put in any aerials because I was had to shoot the entire film using the S1H and you've realized how much you use a drone to kind of build your world. Um, but there was something also quite nice about kind of keeping it on a very human perspective. So I think often it's kind of picking the gear that best fits the, level, the type of storytelling that you're doing. And quite often it's not about having the fanciest equipment, but it's about the best equipment for the job that you're trying to do. And so for the ocean between us, a lot of it was talking about kind of my dad's experiences in the ocean and kind of comparing them back to my own. So I actually used an old Super 8 Cine camera from the 1970s that I bought online off eBay. And it's like this little gun. <laughs> I used the Super 8 and um, everyone laughed at me and I was on the boat like, and it has the sound that is amazing. It's like a proper, it's great. I, yeah, I love playing with different equipment for, for a different style. So that was, that was a lot of fun. I never thought that the equipment choice would be in any way random, but it's really special to know that each piece of the gear armory has a purpose and decision made behind the usage. 
The way she used the Super 8 camera to convey the sense of memory and nostalgia, I love that. What more perfect camera to convey that feeling of old family videos and the look of vintage footage? And the drones, the underwater cases. Honestly, I can't get enough of that stuff, so thank you for indulging me while I inquired about that part of the process. You know what? While we're on the subject of the process, I actually had a question from OG Heckles team member and visual artist Buckles, shout out to Buckles, who was wondering about underwater sound. I hadn't thought to ask this myself, so it was a brilliant addition to my question list. How does the underwater sound part happen? Yeah, so I personally add sound after, and that's, I would love to be doing a lot more in-water recording. Unfortunately, the projects I've been working on so far, I just haven't had the setup and the time to be doing it. The problem for me, if I'm recording sound while I'm filming, is I have scuba bubbles in all of my sound. And it can end up being really out of sync with the imagery. And I think it's quite distracting as well. Like quite often I want people to feel like they're transported, not like I'm holding a camera in front of them. So you kind of, you really want to take that aspect out. So to have good underwater sound, ideally you'd want to have a hydrophone and you'd want to hang it off the boat and just record that sound entirely separately. But it requires a lot of time to be able to do that properly. So what I do is I work with big sound libraries and I try and build up all the individual sounds. And sometimes with a reef, I'll even reach out to local scientists and be like, hey, do you have any reef recordings from this site site? Can I layer some of that under? Can I get the snapping shrimp? Can I make all of those things come to life? And the more that you can layer the sound in, the more you feel like you're genuinely there. And it was actually one of my favorite things about working on My 25 Days Between Us is that I had the opportunity to do a proper mix and sitting in the mixing studio and really playing with the levels and playing with the reverb on things. And it is amazing what a difference it makes. Something goes from being then just an edit that's just kind of cut together bits and pieces to really feeling like a soundscape. And I think that, yeah, the soundscape to me is just as important as the visuals. I think it's it's essential. But yeah, I, I would love to get into a lot more of recording, recording real sound. As our time with Inca reaches its conclusion... I wanted to get her perspective on just a couple more sea topics before we bid farewell for now. I sensed the through line in our chat, and maybe it was something that was all in my mind, but I felt this tremor of nostalgia. It's like in speaking to someone about the sea and her experience within and around it, she was talking simultaneously about a close friend, and friend she hasn't seen for years. Again, maybe this was all me, and it could have just been an undeniable and understandable misty-eyed love for it. But I just wanted to see what that word, nostalgia, meant to her in all of this. I definitely feel nostalgic for the time where I didn't know about all the issues. <laughs> when I could just be present and just enjoy all of the beauty and just feel like there was endless opportunity in the oceans. And I think that now a part of that feels like it's gone because I'm always there and I'm always so aware of how fragile it is. And it used to kind of always feel like this thing that was just overwhelmingly powerful and uncontrollable. And now I'm just like, God, it's, it, it still feels vast, but it also feels so small. <laughs> and like, we have such a level of control over it. And I find part of that quite heartbreaking. And yeah, I, I miss that naivety in a way. But I think at the same time, I, I, I was asked a question recently, which was um, based around David Attenborough's life on our planet. And given the choice, would I rather live his lifetime and spend it in our oceans doing the things, seeing the things he's seen, or would I rather do my lifetime and see where we go? <laughs> and it, it was one of those really interesting questions where I was like thinking about it. And as part of me, it's like, of course I want to do his. He got to see all the big animals. He got to see things in his prime. He got to talk about things when they were still this magical, wonderful, beautiful thing. But then actually I think about my lifetime and I go, but we're at this amazing cusp where we have the potential to build something so much better. And actually, in the last 50, 60 years, our oceans were already being impacted. They were already depleted to a level. And what we have the opportunity to do now is if we can get everybody on board with all of the innovation, with all of the scientists coming together, with the support of the community, and with so many people reconnecting with our oceans and engaging in nature, we have the opportunity to not only protect what we have, but to restore it. And I think that kind of my views in the ocean space as a whole before was so based around ocean conservation. And I think that now I think of our oceans, I think of conservation and I'm just like, I don't want to conserve what we have. I want to build something better. I want to restore it to far, far beyond what we have because what we have now makes me kind of sad. 
And I think there is so much potential. And what I hope is that in the next 50 or 60 years, some of these practices will start to come into place and we might be able to see something that was 10 times better than what we had 50 years ago. So while in, in one sense, I'm definitely nostalgic for the past, I'm also really optimistic for the future. And I think it's crucial that we hold on to that optimism. <laughs> With such an overwhelming sense of positivity, let's return to something I asked guest Nadia Huggins, the underwater photographer and swimmer, back in episode one. I ended by asking her if she had a message for the sea. I would probably tell it to go easy <laughs> on everyone. <laughs> we have so much history and exchange that's happened within the sea and we've really been doing a horrible job being kind to it in return, you know. So I think definitely I would say to, for it to be a bit more compassionate towards us and just be a little bit more patient. And the sea would probably say, tough luck, <laughs> you're just going to have to deal with whatever I bring. <laughs> I thought I'd mirror this with Inca to see what it inspired. Uh, what would I say to the sea? I'd say thank you for endless inspiration, countless moments of rest and the opportunity to heal myself over and over and over again. And um, yeah, I'd say to stay wild, don't be controlled. <laughs> Continue to outlive everything that we do and to be your completely uncontrollable self because that's the part of your beauty. <laughs> Find all of Inca's stunning work on her social media pages. For instance, on Instagram, at Inca Creswell, and her website, IncaCreswell.com. And now that is spelt I-N-K-A-C-R-E-S-S-W-E-L-L. I would encourage you to check her short films, Saltwater Veins and My 25, The Ocean Between Us, as starters. Thank you so much, Inca. It's been a true pleasure. Uh, no worries at all. Good, good. No, I'm glad. Thank you for the conversation. It's been lovely. We are about to enter the meditation area of the podcast, to which you are cordially and officially invited. This will feature a unique meditation written by Heckle's house therapist and best friend of the podcast, Lottie. Before that though, let's give our minds a little more luxury time by way of a second thought break. Layers of sound in which your mind can roam freely. And after that, even more pure indulgence for you to enjoy catch you back here shortly. Welcome back in. We have one more stop to make in our Blue Mind Bubble, which will give you a proper chance to really take a wander outside the confines of the surroundings of your head, or maybe go further inside, whatever your perspective. You're most welcome, and I can't wait to reintroduce good friend Lottie into the Blue Mind podcast. Lottie is a professional therapist in Heckle's house, who guests on each episode whenever possible to deliver a uniquely crafted meditation for you unique to each episode, written and voiced by Lottie. I'll pass over to her for now, and I absolutely invite you to find somewhere comfortable, and maybe horizontal, where you can break off a piece of day for yourself. I'll see you back here afterwards for the Blue Mind Bubble farewell. But before that, dear listener, here, once more, is Lottie. Hi, I'm Lottie. 
Thanks for joining me for this guided meditation. For this episode, the theme is darkness. So a lot of the time we get used to darkness having negative connotations like fear or evil. And we can forget how vital the dark is. Darkness and light are of equal importance and you can't have one without the other. All life begins and develops in the dark. Just think of the time that we all spend in the womb. Or think of a seed germinating deep within the earth. And in creation myths from many ancient civilizations all across the world, the story of life begins with darkness everywhere before the earth, the sky, the sun, the moon or the stars. Every year as we head into winter, the darkness takes over and plants will die and creatures retreat into the darkness and so many signs of life and nature just disappear and surrender to the inevitable without resistance. But this death-like state is only an illusion because on a deeper level there is growth and transformation taking place which will always bring about the rebirth of nature in the spring. So now if you feel comfortable to do so, we're going to take some deep breaths and we're going to breathe in for the count of five and then hold for a sec and then exhale for the count of seven. So breathe in, two, three, four, five and hold for a sec and then exhale, two, three, four. And take another breath in, two, three, four, five, and then hold it for a sec, and then breathe out, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then take one more deep breath in, two, three, four, and then exhale now, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and just feel the weight of your body on whichever surface you're sitting or lying down on and just allow your muscles to relax knowing that you are supported and that you can let go. And now with your eyes closed, just imagine a big tree with its roots which run deep and wide and it stands tall and this tree is ready to let go of its leaves and the wind's blowing through its branches and it's like it's urging those branches to let go of their leaves. And now turn towards that sacred darkness within yourself and just ask yourself what do you need to let go of to help you grow into your full power and potential what do you need to let go of to help you grow into your full power and potential The darkness is inevitable and necessary for this mysterious process of rebirth to take place within you, just like it does within the tree, letting go of its leaves before they grow again. And now meditate for as long as you like. And then whenever you're ready to come back, then just take some more deep breaths and then gently open your eyes. The Blue Mind Podcast was written, produced, 
arranged and scored by me, Buddy Peace. Blue Mind is the name of an excellent book by Wallace J. Nichols, which is essential reading for anyone with an interest of anything sea-related. Thank you so much to Wallace for spiritual inspiration for this podcast. The Blue Mind podcast is produced for Heckles, who you can find online at heckles.co.uk, and that is spelt H-A-E-C-K-E-L-S, or physically at two locations, 18 Cliff Terrace, Margate, which you'll find up near the old Lido, and at 16 Broadway Market in London. You can follow Heckles on Instagram over on at Heckles for product updates, ocean-based positivity and innovations from all over the world. There are regular posts and stories, so it's almost like a constantly evolving blog of sorts. Loads for you to get lost in. We're also on Spotify, where I compile weekly playlists. Just do a quick search for Heckles on Spotify. You'll find us. The playlists are around an hour or more of blissful sonics and beautiful music from all around the world compiled and selected by hand without any algorithm assistance. Each week is unique and it's like an escape button if you need it. The playlists are all under the name Heckles Radio and you should find them easy enough on the uh, profile page on Spotify. Most importantly of all though, I would really like to thank you for listening and for being a part of this podcast. As a listener, you are what makes this thing come alive And if you're enjoying it, an incredible gesture of support would be to recommend it and share it with a friend or anyone you feel would get something from it. Reviews and comments are also welcome, of course. It's a thrill that you're here and listening to the end. And for that, I thank you. Let's catch up soon.